Our scripture is from the book of Job, chapter 23, verses 1 through 17. Then Job answered, Today also my complaint is bitter. God's hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to God's dwelling. I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what God would answer me and understand what God would say to me. Would God contend with me in the greatness of God's power? No, but God would give me heed. There is an upright person, there an upright person could reason with God, and I should be acquitted forever by being my judge. If I go forward, God is not there or backward. I cannot perceive God. On the left, God hides and I cannot behold God. I turn to the right, but I cannot see God. But God knows the way I take. When God has tested me, I shall come out like gold. My foot has held fast to God's steps. I have kept God's way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of God's lips. I have treasured in my bosom the words of God's mouth. But God stands alone, and who can dissuade God? What God desires, that God does. For God will complete what God appoints for me, and many such things are in God's mind. Therefore I am terrified at God's presence when I consider I am in dread of God. God has made my faint heart. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. If only I could vanish in darkness, and thick darkness would cover my face. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. Forty of Job's 42 chapters are poetry. The introduction and the conclusion are prose, but Job's friends go on and on for many chapters of bad theology expressed in great poetry. The other poetry is God's response to Job's demands for vindication. The poetic form of the book of Job is one of the clues that Job is a device, a model, a parable. Job, like Esther, is not a historical figure. Not only does the whole book begin with a wager between God and Satan, but at least in the King James Version, it mentions a unicorn. Job 39.9, will the unicorn be willing to serve thee or abide by thy crib? This was one of my favorite life verses as a teenager. Don't bother looking in your pew Bible. The New Revised Standard Version says, wild ox. But, as many of our favorite literalists prefer the King James Version, my point is still my point, a unicorn. As much as the framing of Job's calamity as a bet between God and Satan is disturbing, and it is, it serves a very important role. 
It lets every reader know from the very beginning that the friend's theological interpretation of what's going on, that Job is being cursed by God for Job's sins, is wrong. <clears throat> Completely and utterly wrong. We know from the very beginning that Job is blameless and upright, of one who fears God and turns from evil. It's important to know this because Job's friends are convinced otherwise and do their best to convince Job that he's a horrible sinner being punished by God and if he would simply confess, it would all be over. As I mentioned in the Time for Children, the friends offer a very simple theology. Bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. This is their belief system and they abuse Job endlessly with it. They don't seem to care that Job's children are dead, that he has literally lost everything and is now living on an ash heap. They don't care. They use their theology for cruelty. Job is suffering, and all they do is stand around and say it's his fault. Job doesn't know about the bet. He doesn't know that he's a pawn and a wager between God and Satan. He suffers tragedy after tragedy while his friends tell him that it's both his fault and God's fault. His fault because he must have done something to deserve all the horror he's experiencing, and God's fault because God is bringing the calamity upon Job as punishment. Job knows he doesn't deserve his suffering, and this is why he demands an opportunity to present his case to God. Job wants God to explain what's going on because Job's theology and his experiences are very much at odds with each other. I don't know about you, but I've had that experience. The experience of my theology and what's happening in my life being at odds with one another. Consciously or not, we've all formed ideas about God and these ideas often go unchecked until we're confronted with the reality of suffering and pain, confronted with evil. And then we begin to question our understandings of God. Philosophers and theologians refer to this as the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of theodicy. Job is perhaps the first book on theodicy. Job's ideas about God are called into question by his experiences of suffering and by his horrible friends and by his experiences of God in the whirlwind. In our passage this morning, we read, I would lay my case before God and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn what God would say, that God would answer me. I would understand what God would say to me. Would God contend with me in the greatness of God's power? No, but God would give heed to me there is an upright person who could reason with God, and I should be acquitted forever by my judge. Job wants to confront God, wants to ask what's going on and to be justified. God does give Job an answer in this book. It's not quite what Job is hoping for, and I find it rather dissatisfying myself. God goes on and on, waxes eloquently about things like ostriches, but doesn't address Job's suffering. 
The Odyssey questions the nature of God in light of suffering and evil. But why does suffering cause such existential questioning? Why is it so problematic? The reality of suffering is regularly presented as a theistic problem in that the existence of suffering seems to conflict with a benevolent and omnipotent God. When I was a young child, I imagined God as an all-powerful grandfather-like divinity, something like a cross between Zeus and Andy Griffith. <laughs> this understanding of God fell apart when my mother died. I, like Job, wanted to find God and have God explain to me what the hell was going on. Job calls his friends miserable comforters. I had plenty of those. People who told me that my mother's death was God's will. That I couldn't understand now, but someday I would, and think of the testimony I would have. Others explained that God needed my mother in heaven. I couldn't imagine that God needed my mother more than my brothers and I did. My miserable comforters were so certain that God either caused or allowed my mother's death. But I never bought it. And that left me adrift. I could not believe in a God who could stop suffering but chose not to. How could such a God be a God of love? I read Night for the first time in middle school. In Elie Wiesel, I found a fellow questioner of God. Wiesel tells more than the story of his experiences in concentration camps during the Nazi occupation. He explains his experiences with the Odyssey. In the midst of so much pain and suffering, so much silence from God, he began to see and feel void. During Yom Kippur, he described, I did not fast, mainly to please my father who had forbidden me to do so. But further, there was no longer any reason why I should fast. I no longer accepted God's silence. As I swallowed my bowl of soup, I saw in the gesture an act of rebellion and protest against God, and I nibbled my crust of bread. In the depths of my heart, I felt a great void. In All Rivers Run to the Sea, Memoirs, Wiesel said that he never renounced his faith in God. He never stopped believing in God, but in certain things about God. For Wiesel, God did die, a God that could solve problems, that could change things, that could fix the suffering, and didn't that God die, vanished forevermore beneath the gaze of the child hanging from the gallows, beneath the gaze of the child who suffered in Nazi Germany, beneath the gaze of a mother and sister and smoke greens coming from the crematorium. Wiesel tells the story of the hanging of two Jewish men and a youth in the Nazi concentration camp. All the prisoners, Wiesel included, were paraded before the gallows to witness this horrifying spectacle. He writes, the men died quickly, but the death throes of the youth lasted for half an hour. 
Where is God? Where is God? Someone asked behind him. As the youth still hung in torment from the noose after a long time, the man called again, Where is God? And I heard a voice in myself answer, Where is God? God is here. God is hanging here on the gallows. Bizel finds God in the suffering. We seek meaning in our lives. We consider God and we come to conclusions about what God is like. And when our ideas come into conflict with our life experiences as Job's did, as Bizel's did, we must reconsider and reconstruct. This is the work of theology. This is what we seek to do here at Covenant. Job's friends, while they were unlikely to have ever lived and breathed, are at least in my experience very much alive and well. The idea that the bad suffer and the good are rewarded is as common as a blessed bumper sticker and an anguished cry of, why God, when suffering comes? God lets the friends have it for their miserable comfort and horrible theology. In Job, God tells the friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. Friends are not correct, and God lets them know. Now, think of every bit of bad advice someone has offered you in the midst of your suffering. Think of every platitude, every sentence that began at least, every suggestion that your pain is somehow God's will or your fault. Every bit of miserable comfort you have ever been given over the years, and now imagine that God feels the same way you do about it. God is angry with the friends for their bad theology. This challenge to bad theology was needed at the time of the writing of Job, and it is no less needed now. Here at Covenant, we seek to counter bad theology. We proclaim with each Sunday and with every effort of each committee that love is the heart of our theology, love for God, love for our community, love for the earth. Our worship folder says each week, ministers, members of Covenant. We are all ministers to each other seeking to do the good, hard work of theology and the no less good and no less hard work of caring for each other. We seek to be the opposite of miserable comforters. We seek to care for each other, to listen, to seek forgiveness and offer it, to lean in when things are challenging rather than giving up. Whatever suffering you faced or continue to face, however you understand God or don't understand God, wherever you are on your faith journey, I'm glad you're here. You're needed. 
your thought, your care, your questions, your wonder, your unique perspectives. In my experiences, sometimes God is silent. Often God is confusing. In my experiences at Covenant, you have never shamed me for my questions, nor have you offered me easy answers. You've never denied my experiences, never asked me to be or believe someone or something else. This is a questioning faith community of grace where the work of theodicy is welcome, where empathy and compassion are our goals, where love leads us. We create this desperately needed community together.